This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Reflecting on the fact that my wife and I are like are very different. Um, obviously, we're physically different. She's much kinder on the eyes than I am, but there are also other differences. Uh, we have vastly, like vastly, night and day different uh, upbringings. Like our backgrounds are very, very different. We have very different personalities. She's quiet and indirect. Um, I'm often not quiet and very direct. Um, You've heard me mention before that since we've been married, we've actually never voted the same on the president issue, which is interesting. There's that. She works nights. I tend to work most days. Um, This week we stopped at a little vegan hot dog stand. Yes, those exist. The good one in Kaimaki. If you ever need a vegan hot dog, really, really good. Um, She got ketchup. I got mustard. Right. Um, Christy often says that the differences balance us out, right, and make us a good couple. And I think there's some truth to that. Um, I'm a good driver. Uh, uh, just, just, uh, it's it's u- unity and diversity, right? Unity and diversity, unity and difference. But maybe the greatest difference between me and my wife is this: she likes numbers. She likes numbers. Um, it was actually Christy who helped me get through the very last semester of my undergraduate work. I had this math class I was struggling with, and she, like, pulled me through that somehow. Um, but Lydia asked her a few evenings ago, Mom, what was your favorite subject in school? And she replied, math. Math. It's something you'd never, ever hear me say, math. Math. Uh, I'm not a math person, never have been. Don't think I ever will be. Uh, but growing up, you know, math just was never my thing. I've never, like, felt confident with math. I've never enjoyed math. And even now, when my kids uh, bring their schoolwork home and they have math problems, they know that I'm not the one to come to with their math problems. They better ask mom rather than dad. And, and there have even been times where I've, I've helped the kids on their math problems and, like, Christy will go behind me and like check to make sure uh, the answers are right. Um, But, you know, math just kind of freaks me out a little bit. I love words, right, words. And uh, because of that, I actually think that the worst kind of math problems are the word math problems. The word, y'all remember these, you don't. You remember the word math problems, right? Um, Instead of an equation simply writing out the numbers uh, on the the lines or whatever. They're cloaked in a story or some kind of cryptic sentence, right? If so-and-so is traveling on a train going 75 miles an hour from Chicago to Cincinnati, how long will it take to get there? (laughs) What? What just happened? Um, Or when the math people are like, we ran out of numbers, so let's start using letters. What? Like, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, 
teachers, you know, they, they refer to those word problems like that as uniform rate problems. That's like the, I learned that this week, uniform rate problems, or more commonly distance word problems. That makes sense. Um, th there's a formula, D equals R times T is actually the formula you could give, but instead they cloak it in a paragraph and you get a 550 mile, five hour plane trip with two planes flying at different speeds. What's the answer? Who knows? Like, who knows? Um, again, just not my, not my thing. And so uh, I was thinking about that this week and uh, the planes moving. And somebody told me recently, a friend said, you, you're always moving at 100 miles an hour, Michael. You're always moving at 100 miles an hour. And thankfully, he didn't add a distance problem to that um, and turn it into a, you know, a distance problem. But much of this week, I was reflecting on that pace at which I tend to move. It's a fast pace. It tends to be very, very fast. And I was thinking about it because during this season in my life, I've been trying to be intentional just about slowing down. Um, sometimes just pausing, right? And I've made it a priority all this week and much of last week um, to just pause like several times a day uh, for focused prayer. And I've been, I've been really trying to be intentional about noticing like where God is moving around me. Like where he's moving in me, but where he's moving around me. And if you ever notice, right, during the communion meditations, for example, I'm often sharing something that happened just during the week. And, and, and something that was said or done or heard or thought. And those thoughts for the communion meditation just stem, right, from observing God at work around me. Something happened. Well, that, that makes me think of communion. It makes me, sends me back to the cross, right? But it often takes just slowing down to notice. In our society, I think it's safe to say we're obsessed with speed. Like we are obsessed with speed. We have jets and motorcycles and trains and cars and so on. These things, they move at incredibly fast rates. And unless you're driving through Honolulu, then it doesn't move at an incredibly fast rate. But humans, we, we weren't actually made to move that fast. We weren't. It's not normal for a human to just be flying at 100 miles an hour, 500 miles an hour in the sky, whatever. Or to be in a car on the ground moving 60, 70, 80, 90 miles. That's not normal for a human to do that. We're not built, at least biologically. Like none of us can do that. We're not built biologically to be able to do that ourselves. But as technology continues on, things are created to move us faster and faster and faster and faster. Informa information travels now faster than it ever has at any, any time in the world so far. It's too much to possibly keep up with. It's overwhelming, isn't it? And so this week I've been intentional about slowing down. I'm learning that it's good and healthy to slow down. And I want to encourage all of you to join, me, to join me in doing that, just slowing down. This year, I think that's what I'm, I'm going to commit to slowing down. Like not, not, not stopping work or anything, just slowing down. I'm just slowing down. I'm going to commit to pausing more. Because some things just require time. A couple of months ago, I created 
uh, in, our, in our little sidewalk on the side of our house, I created this trellis tunnel. It was like a little tunnel. And it's on the side of our house. And I started growing vines up the side of this thing, right? So that you'd be eventually walking through these, this vine tunnel. It would be pretty cool when it, it's finally done. But, you know, I, wa- I want it to be done tomorrow. <laughs> I want it to be done tomorrow. But I've learned, like, I can't force this. Like, I can't make these, these vines grow. For, I, was, I was out. I filled up the water jug earlier this week, the plant water jug. And some of the vines are reaching up to the top. And I was too lazy to get the hose and hook it up. So I filled up the water jug. And I'm just like out on the sidewalk trying to like spray them. Christy's like, Michael, stop. You don't need to do that. Stop, stop. Um, You look ridiculous. You don't need to be doing that. And as much as I want that to be done tomorrow, I can't force the plants to grow. So the last month or so, I'll go out and check on the plants and I'll water them. Right, and as I'm standing there watering them, humanity just hits me, and I'm forced to admit that. Like, I can't force this, it's gonna do what it wants to do. I can try to help it along with some water, but that's all I can do. Some things just take time, some things require going slower. And it might be hard to believe, but the game of basketball it was created 130 years ago in 1891. This is the 130th anniversary this year of basketball. For the first five years, as history has it, there was no dribbling in basketball. Did you know that? The first five years, there was no dribbling in basketball. It took five years for that to become a thing. Dribbling was introduced into the game in 1896. It revolutionized the game, completely changed it. In that season, however, the number of players on each side of each team was nine, right? So there were originally 18 players on the court at a time in a basketball game. And it was in 1897 that that number was reduced to five per team and 10 on the court in total. And then move forward, in in 1954 and the 55 season, the 24-second shot clock was introduced, It took 90 years from its inception of basketball to get the three-point shot. 90 years. That came in 1979 in the NBA. And guess what? It took seven more years after that for the college basketball to adopt it. In 2002, instant replay was integrated to help officials. And there have been a lot more changes, but as one friend has said it, it's difficult to imagine basketball without, it, without these things, isn't it? Change is often necessary and good. And good and necessary change often takes time. Honestly, of all the things that I've preached from this pulpit, from right here, I think that Maybe the message to just tell you to slow down might be the most countercultural thing I've ever said from, from this pulpit. Just slowing down isn't a part of our culture. It's just not. In other cultures, maybe, but not ours. And for all of you who are older than me, you know that to be even truer than I do, in a sense. You've seen the world, Auntie Jerry, Auntie Naomi, you've seen the world changing at a dizzying pace, Right? And so, let's slow down. 
right? I want to invite you with me to just slow down. Bridge Church, slow down with me. And in our quest this year to give the Spirit more to work with, I think the most effective way to do that is first, let's just slow down together. Anybody know the average speed a plane moves? I said it just a few minutes ago. About 500 miles, really about 575 miles an hour. The average speed of a car? Yeah, 55 to 70 miles an hour. Anyone know the average speed a human moves? 3 miles an hour. There was this Japanese pastor, uh, is a theologian too, named uh, Kosuke Koyama. And he used to work in the rice fields in Thailand, and he put it this way. I love this, guys. Listen to this. He says, love has its speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed, love, from the technological speed to which we're accustomed He says, it goes on, love, in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, at three miles an hour. It's the speed we walk, and therefore the speed the love of God walks. Three miles an hour. That's the speed that each of us were built to walk. And since God is the God who created us, and God is the God who walks with us, that's the speed God walks too, three miles an hour. A three-mile-an-hour God. A God who's not afraid, right, to be in the middle of the rat race walking slowly with us. A God who isn't afraid to hang back with us. A three-mile-an-hour God. Three-mile-an-hour God. And I think the next chapter in our series here in Genesis makes that clear. We're going to read Genesis 5 here in just a moment. And as we do, you're going to notice some things. But I think you'll notice one thing in particular, especially as we hit verse 5. There's a genealogy. Oh, my gosh, these people lived insanely long lives. What, what was in their Wheaties, right? What was going on? They lived long lives, slow lives, agrarian lives, farmer lives. Not just a day or two, but for like generation after generation. For hundreds and hundreds of years. And God took the long view. He was there throughout the generations. Now, don't just gloss over this genealogy we're going to read. Genealogies like these, they often have very rich things in them. So we're going to read closely. We're going to read closely. Here's what the text says. This is the book of the generations of humanity. If you have your own version out, it might say Adam. That's not right. This is supposed to be humanity here. This is the book of the generations of humanity. In the day that God created humanity, he made them in God's likeness. Sounds like Genesis 126 and 7. He created them male and female and blessed them. And on the day they were created, he named them humanity. Adam lived 130 years and became the father of a son in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he became the father of other sons and daughters. 
All the days that Adam lived were 900 years, and then he died. Seth lived 105 years. Watch these numbers here, right? Then he became the father of Enosh. Seth lived after he became the father of Enosh 807 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. All the days of Seth were 912 years, and then he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Canaan. Enosh lived after he became the father of Canaan 815 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. And I don't like, by the way, that the way that, uh, oh no, I don't like the way that uh, Canaan is spelled here. Um, but whatever. All the days of Enosh were 905 years. Whew. And then he died. Canaan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he became the father of Mahalalel 840 years. What is going on, right? And became the father of other sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and then he died. Man, most preachers skip over this stuff. I'm going to show you how this is mind-blowing in a minute. Watch. Just hang on. Mahalalel lived 65 years and then became the father of Jared. That's also a bad spelling. Jared there. It should be Yared. But Mahalalel lived after he became the father of Yared 830 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. And then he died. Yared lived 162 years. Then he became the father of Enoch. Yared lived after he became the father of Enoch 800 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. And all the days of Yared were 962 years. And then he died. Enoch lived 65 years, then became the father of Methuselah. And after Methuselah's birth, Enoch walked with God for 300 years, and became the father of more sons and daughters. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. What? Everybody else is like 700, 800, 900, 365. What? Enoch walked with God, and then he was not. He was no longer, for God took him. Read that again. Enoch walked with God, then he was no longer, for God took him. Okay, Methuselah lived 187 years, then became the father of Lamech. Methuselah lived after he became the father of Lamech 782 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. 969, then he died. We're almost there to the end. Lamech lived 182 years and then he became a father of a son. He named him Noah. Y'all know Noah, saying, this one will comfort us in our work and in the toil of our hands. Or another way to translate that probably better is, this one will relieve us from our work and in the toil of our hands, caused by the ground which Adonai has cursed. Lamech lived after he became the father of Noah 595 years and became the father of other sons and daughters. And here we go at the end. All the days of Lamech were 777 years and then he died. Noah was 500 years old. Then Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All right, why are we even looking at this? 
right? It seems boring, probably. It's not. This is amazing, so just hang with me here. There's a lot to think about. The long lives, right? That, that thing, that's kind of perplexing. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. What, what do we make of the, like, 900 and something years? What do we do with that? I want to go back to these first few verses here. Okay, follow me. Pay attention to the similarities between verses 1 and 3. All right, this is the book of the generations of humanity. In the day that God created humanity, he made them in, his, in God's likeness. God's image and likeness. And then verse 3, right? Skip down to that. Adam lived 130 years and became the father of a son in his what? His own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. And there are a couple ways we can understand this. One of them is positively. Namely, that God created humanity in his own image and Adam, who was the start of humanity, passed that image of God on to Seth. And then somehow humans pass that on. There's a whole theological debate about that. I'm not going to get into it. But it raises the question, well, why didn't, why, why didn't Adam then pass that on to Cain and Abel, right? When Cain and Abel's story starts in the last chapter, it never says anything like that. Instead, as we saw last week, it tells us that Eve seemed to place herself on par with God. I've created a human just like he did. Okay, so for, from a more negative perspective, that could be what's going on, right? Uh, but the, Adam, in his own way, kind of, but similar, somewhat similar to Eve, he is passing on his corrupted uh, image, his corrupted likeness, rather than the image and likeness of God. So we have this imago dei, the image of God, and the similitude dei. Those are Latin terms, the likeness of God. Those were corrupted in Adam. Those were corrupted in Eve. And so it seems that here, if we just slow down and read a little, it seems that what's happened is that Eve, that like Eve, Adam finds more of himself in the equation than God. There's a stark contrast then between God's creative endeavors in 5.1 and Adam's in 5.3. That's one way to read it. If, if Eve did indeed put on display her arrogance in Genesis 4.1 saying, I made a man as God made a man, well, at least God is mentioned, Right? But here in 5.3, if you contrast it with 5.1, the narrator telling the story gives us no quote from Adam. Adam doesn't say anything. And so, no mention of God by Adam. It would seem then that Adam is actually taking the arrogance of Eve to the next level. God's not even in the equation at this point with Adam. Like he's ratcheted up, Adam has the arrogance this is his doing. He made Seth in his image and his likeness. That's not the only way to read it. But from my perspective, I think that may well be what the text is signaling, if we read closely. It forces us to ask, right, whose image and likeness are we shaping the next generation in? Like our own image and likeness or God's? And we saw, we see what happens when it's in our own image and likeness. 
It goes for us who are parents, who are grandparents, we're sitters, we're aunties, uncles, whatever. And it goes for us here at this church. Tyler, as you saw, is working to teach our kids these like foundational truths, these foundational principles and beliefs, teaching them about the Trinity to be able to describe who is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like a lot of adults couldn't even do that. Right? So we, we got to start at that age. But it's looking generationally. It's looking generationally. Looking ahead and preparing now for the future. Not just waiting on the future to get here. It's a generational outlook like I was talking about last week. The first words of this chapter, these are the generations of humanity. You know, I wonder, think about this, looking back at us, what might folks say about us like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years on? Oh, that was the generation of worry. You know, that was the generation of lazy. Like, what will they say? That was the generation of division? Or that was the generation of spiritual immaturity? Like, is this really what they bequeathed to us that they left us? Or that was the generation, you know, of allegiance to God. Like those were some allegiant people whose shoulders we stand on. That was the generation of like committed study. That was the generation of unity. That was the generation of encouragement. That was the generation of edification. That was the generation that they let God grow them up. Like that was the generation that gave the spirit more to work with. These are important things for us to think about. There are a lot of things the text has to say too, and I want to talk for a moment about some of those. In Genesis 5, 5 through 32, so that whole like genealogy section, we get that long list of names, the genealogy. And one of the things I know I noted before was how long the people were living. And if you go through the lives of these folks, like starting with Adam up through the last one mentioned, Noah, it spans about 1,600 years roughly. But some of these dudes, and by the way, they're all dudes. They're all dudes that are mentioned. That, that was often the case in ancient genealogies. Jesus' genealogy kind of breaks the mold a little bit there, but some of them were living into the 900s. Could you imagine? Like living into the 900s. Like I'm in my 40s and like, whew. You know, 900s. So what do we make of this? Is it an exaggeration? Like some people look at this and oh, that was exaggeration, right? Was there a different way of counting then? That's an interesting question. A different way of counting years. Is it symbolic? Some people have asked that. Is it literal? Like, what do we make of this? Right, what do we, okay, before I share my answer on that, I'll, there's a point we got to consider. And it'll lead us into my answer on that. Actually, there's two points, but here's the first. If we go back and parse it out, right, there are 10 generations. For each person, right, there's that formula you sort of get. The narrator's using a formula. One, so-and-so reached a certain number of years. Two, they had children. And three, they died at a certain age. So why am I telling you this? It gets to the point, so look at this chart and watch what happens, right? You can see it as you look at the odd man out here. If you just go down, died at age number, blank, 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 boom, Enoch, 
doesn't die. Did you notice that? Enoch doesn't die. He lives on. The text says that he was just taken away. It begins by saying Enoch walked with God for 300 years. And then it emphasizes it again. Enoch walked with God and he was no longer. Enoch breaks the pattern of death in the genealogy. How? How does Enoch break the pattern? The text tells us, how did Enoch break the pattern of death? By walking with God. By walking with God. That's how he broke the pattern of death. By walking. It might seem like no big deal, but think of this. What was Adam doing in the garden before the fall? Do you remember? Was walking with God. They were walking together in the cool of the day in the garden. Accompaniment. And that, that was lost when Adam and Eve went their own way. They walked their own way. They walked their own direction. They sought independence. They walked their own way. And for generations after, that's what was passed on. Generations walking this way. Generations walking this way. And walking this way. And walking this way. Generations walking their own way. But somehow, in the middle of that, Enoch steps in and he breaks rank, right? He returned. He walked with God. And God's gift, no death. Just walking with God. The Hebrew language is great here, but the Greek translation of the Hebrew is really emphatic. It says, Enoch was no more because God transformed him. I love it. I love that image. Enoch is hope for us all, right? Because we can break rank with separation from God. We can even break rank with death. Remember, in Genesis 3, the first animal was killed and God clothed Adam and Eve in a dead animal. He clothed them with death. And then just a few verses later, what happens? We get the first death, the first murder. And then at a few verses later, what happens? We get a guy singing a song of bragging about murder. And so generations of death are passed on, and then Enoch comes along, and he breaks rank. He breaks the cycle of death. Enoch, in a family tradition, clothed in death, breaks rank. He chooses life by choosing to walk with God. It's an amazing thing, right? And it's proof that you and I, right, no matter our upbringings, our backgrounds, our experiences, our traumas, our hurts, or our pains, or our mistakes, or our hardships, or our failures, or our flaws, or whatever, we can break rank with all that crap. Like, we can be people of life. We can be the ones in our family who turn the ship around by choosing to walk with God, by choosing to walk with God, by being intentional about walking with God. It's amazing, isn't it? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah? Hallelujah. You can be the progenitor of change, like no matter your age, young is the oldest, it can start with you and me, us. Continue with us. We can pass it on. We can walk with God and be the ones who bring change. 
into the mix. Even to this day, I'm still the only Christian in my family. Breaking rank, y'all. Walking with God, y'all. One question. Maybe you were thinking, well, if Enoch, Enoch didn't die, where'd he go? Lots of answers to this. Here's my view. Where is it in Scripture God's walking first? Eden, paradise. Genesis 3.8. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden. with Same exact word in the Hebrew for Enoch, walk, is used here. And there's a strand of Jewish tradition, interpretation, that holds the idea that God took Enoch back to the garden with him. Oh, I love that. To dwell in the garden with him. To continue his walking in the garden with him. I love that image. And it brings us now to that question of why do people seem to live so long? And here's my response to you. Maybe you like it, maybe you won't, but length of life is not important in this text. Genesis isn't interested. God is not interested in the longevity of a single life. These guys can live 900 plus years, and you know what? So what? If they didn't walk with God, so what? God's not interested in the longevity of a single life. He's interested in the loyalty of a life. Loyalty to him is the only thing that makes longevity worth anything. Did you hear that? Loyalty to him is the only thing that makes longevity worth anything. To live 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever, walking with God and being loyal is better, according to Genesis, than living 900 plus, living a life walk without him. I know I'm getting loud, but I'm excited. I think that's the point here. Did they really live 900 years? Sure. Could there have been a different way of calculating time? Sure. Are the verses literal? Sure. Are they symbolic? Sure. But really, who cares? That's not the point. The point is longevity means nothing if there's no loyalty to God, and Enoch proves that. Walking with God is the most important. We can get hung up on that, the long lives thing. That's fun to do. It's fine to do. But we much rather get hung up on Enoch, who was loyal and walked with God. So if you look at the list, right, Enoch's years are numbered less than every single one else's, right? Yet he's the one who walked with God. Loyalty. Loyalty over longevity, or loyalty is the only thing that can truly give meaning to longevity. You get what I'm saying? It matters not, it matters not how long you live, it matters how you live. It matters not how many days you get to walk on this earth. It matters that you walk with God on this earth, the days that you have. It matters not that you leave a legacy for yourself. It matters that you're loyal in your walk that contributes to God's legacy. And you do that how? By giving him more to work with. You do that by studying it, by, by letting him mature you, by letting him grow you up. You do that by being a teachable disciple. You do that too in ways that are unique to you and your gifting. 
Now, there's one other thing I want to show you about this genealogy that just blows my mind, right? This is, this is the kind of thing that I'm going to show you that just makes me just love Scripture and studying Scripture. The insight doesn't come easy. It takes a lot of time to get, but the dividends are rich. I want to show you this. Check this out. We've been looking at this genealogy, but we can't look at this genealogy just on its own. Like there's a lot, a lot of interesting stuff here. To really get this genealogy and the full like force of it, we have to keep it in the context of the story of Genesis so far. That's why I like preaching through books, right? Through books, right? Might take us a long time. That's why I like doing it. Because it keeps the story going and we can connect where we're at today with where we've already been. Okay? So you remember that Cain killed Abel. And just after that, in Genesis 4, we encounter this list of Cain's relatives. We read that last week. Here are their names again. This is Cain's descendants. Watch this. Cain, Enoch, Erad, Mahuayel, Methusael, Lamech, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. We read about them last week. Okay, so what? Well, we move on to chapter 5. Sorry, that's a little font, but you have it in your hand out there. So check this out. On the right, we have Seth's line. That's why I said I didn't like the spelling of, with the K, right? Because you miss this. There's a reversal happening, and it's incredible. Watch this. On Cain's side, this is what we have. On Seth's side, this is what we have. So look at this. You have Cain and Canaan, Enoch and Enoch. That's actually spelled the exact same way. Then we have this, Irad and Yared, one letter difference. And then watch this. We have Mahuayel and Mahalalel. Very, very similar. And then watch. Methuselah and Methuselah. You see what's happening here. Look at this. Lamech and Lamech are spelled the same way. And then we get these last three. Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal, and Noah. Basically, what we have going on right here, when we put Genesis 4 next to Genesis 5, is a redemption of the human line in Seth. The names are so similar in each, but they're just enough different to make that point. Cain's line will end, but Seth's will carry on. And Seth's line is actually the line that Jesus comes from. Seth will, in fact, carry the line of Noah. Seth's name, did you know? Seth's name in Hebrew literally means the appointed one or the placed one. And the idea is that it's Seth who's the appointed one to carry on that line. To carry on the generations of humanity. And he's been placed in a position to do just that. And the last member of Seth's line that we read here is Noah. You know what his name means? Relief. The appointed one, through him will come relief for the people. This is amazing. Amazing. And it brings us to our word of the week. Aptronym. An aptronym is a name that relates is uh, uh, a name that relates to its owner's life, profession, or personality. So, just like uh, I was doing some genealogy work yesterday, and in my own genealogy back into Germany, uh, we come from a line of Bauers. And if you know the word Bauer in German, means farmer, right? So, my Bauer family members were actually farmers. It's the same kind of thing. And so, um, Seth means appointed one, aptronym. Noah means relief, aptronym. 
in our family novel here, Genesis, what's so cool about this is that through the appointed one comes relief for the people. Relief from sin, relief from suffering, relief from separation from God. And in fact, it's through Seth, the appointed one, that Enoch comes, the one who turns it all around and starts walking with God again. And man, there's so much hope here. Hope that things can turn around. And you can be the catalyst for that. And I can be the catalyst for that. Things to turn around in our family when we have a generational outlook of walking with the Lord and letting him redeem the crap in our lives. God can do a new thing. He can do a new work. He can give a new outlook. He can give a new hope. He can give a new birth and a new love. God can bring about a great reversal. He can turn the ship around. I got to be careful when I say that. He can right the ship that's gone off course. He can bring, as we've sung about, beauty to ashes. He can turn rivers into highways, right? He can turn graves into gardens. And he's the only one who can. He can turn unteachableness to teachableness, immaturity to maturity, stunted growth to growth, inflexibility to flexibility, staleness to wonder, boredom to freedom, weakness to strength, arrogance to humility, anger to gladness, worry to hope, and death to life. And he's the only one who can. But you and I, we got to be willing. Like, it requires that from us. And when we are then there's no telling what can happen. So let's do this. Let's be intentional about walking with the Lord and doing it together. Not walking our own way, not walking out here alone, not walking without purpose. Let's walk with the Lord and do it together. Like that's what I'm yearning for. That's what I want so badly. This may sound a little crazy, but I think when scripture talks about walking with the Lord, like it doesn't just mean figuratively, like in your imagination, in your spirit. It's not just a symbolic thing. I think it's actually quite literal, like walking, like steps on the ground, walking. If you can't walk, then it's about being still. But all throughout Scripture, right? Hang with me for another couple minutes here. All throughout Scripture, walking is something that's front and center. I think we've lost our theology of walking. We need to recover it. Like desperately need to recover it. I was reading this book by a theologian named Mark Buchanan this week. He says this. It grieves me that... Many spiritual traditions have a corresponding physical discipline, but Christianity has none. Hinduism, he says, has yoga. Taoism has tai chi. Shintoism has karate, as you guys like to say it here, mainland karate. Buddhism has kung fu. Confucianism has hapkido. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Sikhism has gatka. Christianity has nothing. But the reality is, it did have something. It simply got lost. It's the oldest and simplest practice of all. The oldest and simplest practice around 
walking. And it started very early on with a God in the habit of taking a walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And he invited our first parents to join him. Let's go on a walk. Until that terrible day when Adam and Eve ran away and hid. Even after that, holiness and walking with God, as you read scripture, holiness is essentially equated with walking with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah, as we'll learn next uh, in a couple weeks, walked with God. Later, the prophet Micah, he asked, what does God require of you? God, he says, wants us to love mercy and do justice, to walk humbly with him. Later, St. Paul picks up the theme, follow God's example, walk in the way of love, just as Christ himself gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. So walking is the primary way of knowing God. Have you ever thought about that? God walks with us at three miles an hour, just as you are, just as I am. And he moves slow with us through all of life's events. He's there in the weeping in the morning, the singing and rejoicing, the highs and lows, the ups and downs. He's there at the, the weddings and the birthdays, the funerals and the burials. He's there walking with us in each circumstance. And so here's something very practical that you can do this week, like beyond simple. Here's the bottom line. Slow down and learn to walk again at God's speed. Some of us need to learn the basic skill of how to walk again. So this week, I want to challenge you. Recommit to learning how to walk. Take some, take some baby steps and some bigger steps and some adult steps and then some disciple steps. Literally, like I'm telling you, literally go on walks this week. And walk with God. Use it as a time to sing or pray. Listen to the sermon again. Study, I don't know. Walk, marvel, and look at God's wonder all around us, his work all around us. Talk with other people you see on your walk. Be the good news on two feet. Go around the block or down the street or around a trail, whatever. Take a hike this week. Walk. Do what you, like Enoch, were made to do. Walk loyally with the Lord. And be confident that when you do, God can use that to turn things around. Friends, we have a three-mile-an-hour God. And he longs mostly to walk with you and for you to walk with him. So go walk. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and receive this benediction. And now as you walk out of this place, may you do so walking with the Lord. May you be the gospel on two legs, on two feet. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.